Welcome to a crossover episode of Great Ideas and Beyond Politics on WKXL and wherever you get your podcasts in both of those podcast streams. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, happiness. Something seems to be wrong in America, and we've gotten so used to it, we don't really talk about it, or at least not enough anyway. We seem to be in a major happiness recession, and we have been for a long time. Research using data from 50 years of trends in public opinion from the General Social Survey showed the highest proportion of Americans ever in recent years, 80%, saying they were satisfied with their own family's financial situation, while an all-time low reported being very happy in their lives, just 14%. And over the last 40 years, a median of 66% of Americans told Gallup that they were dissatisfied. In the last decade or so, before the pandemic sent our rates of despair into overdrive, major depression was rapidly rising, the suicide rate was up 35%, drug use and death were skyrocketing, birth rates were down 23%, and Americans told Pew researchers that they had become deeply pessimistic about the future. There are also signs that Americans are issuing a cry for help. In 2018, Yale's happiness course became their most popular class in over 300 years, according to the university, and they're not alone. The How to Build a Life column about happiness by Arthur Brooks is one of the most popular on the Atlantic's website. And our guest today, Dr. Katherine Sanderson, has become a widely cited author for her contributions on positive thinking and achieving better parenting, happier aging, and more courage in our lives. Dr. Sanderson is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of Psychology at Amherst College. She's published over 25 journal articles and book chapters, in addition to four college textbooks, middle school and high school health textbooks, as well as the introduction to psychology course for The Great Courses. In 2012, she was named one of the country's top 300 professors by the Princeton Review. She certainly sounds like one of the busiest. Her talks have been featured in numerous mainstream media outlets, including the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, USA Today, The Atlantic, CNN, and CBS Sunday Morning, in addition to Beyond Politics and Great Ideas. Welcome to both, Dr. Sanderson. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I am really delighted to have you here, and maybe that's one of the few instances of delight that Americans seem to be feeling these days. I don't know how you feel about my characterization of America being in a happiness recession, but I'm not a social psychologist. You are an actual psychologist, but it certainly seems to me from my overview of the statistics, which I tend to look at through a political context, that Americans are downright unhappy. So what do you make of that characterization? Are we in a happiness recession? So sadly, I do agree with your characterization. And I really wish I could start by being more uplifting, saying, no, you've got the statistics wrong. Really, we're very happy. I mean, I, I would love to be able to say that. But the reality is those statistics are really reflecting what people are experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives. And, and that was probably true even prior to the pandemic, as you note. But certainly the last few years have been really difficult for lots of people for lots of different reasons. So I think your characterization is quite apt. I trace, and again, this is me looking at polling data and kind of my, you know, my training was in economics, not psychology. I thought I was going to major in psychology, but abnormal psych just threw me right off. When I look at, at that kind of data, I see ah, the beginnings of this. 
About 50 years ago, you can certainly see it at the beginning of Gallup polling on their question of whether people feel generally satisfied or generally dissatisfied. And that proportion of about two thirds of Americans saying that they're dissatisfied. You also see it begin to go on steroids in the last decade or so where that proportion rises to 71 or 72 percent. Where do you trace the origins of this level of unhappiness among Americans? So I think it's really hard to disentangle all of the different effects. So I, I want to be really clear about that. Certainly, one of the challenges is that different pieces of data point in different directions. So let me give you a really simple example. The advent of the uh, cell phone. Now, initially, that was seen as something really, really great because all of a sudden you could call people from the car, you could stay in touch, you know, more easily with, you know, family members, you know, with friends and so on. And so this idea of technology is going to help bring relationships together. And in a very real sense, that's probably true. So many college students today who I teach report talking to a family member a parent, a sibling, every single day. I remember when I went to college in the late 80s, I would stand in line for the payphone to call my parents collect. And my dad would say, it's really expensive, talk quickly. And, and that was all. I mean, it was, you know, sort of once a week I did this update. And so we can think about technology as helping us stay connected and stay closer. Certainly that was true for lots of people in the pandemic, being able to FaceTime or Skype, let them see friends, relatives, and so on. However, and this is a really big however, it also has clearly led to more unhappiness in some ways. There's this constant sense of comparison. I've got three kids, an 18-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 24-year-old, and I regularly say, I feel lucky that I am old enough that when I was in high school, I never had to see pictures of parties I wasn't invited to. <laughs> right, right, right. Right, FOMO is real. FOMO is real and FOMO is exacerbated by the amount of time people are spending on social media. It preserves this idea of comparison all the time in every possible different way. And that what we know, again, quoting Teddy Roosevelt, comparison is the thief of joy. That's really interesting because to the extent that I have any minor stirrings of training in your field and your expertise, it's through the lens of behavioral economics. And we do know from research in that domain that people really care about group affiliation and comparative group affiliation. And you can do all kinds of fascinating experiments where you know, it's like the the monkeys and the cucumbers and the grapes experiment, widely cited, right? You know, you give monkeys a cucumber as a treat, they're thrilled. And then what they really want, though, is the grape. Grapes are awesome. Grapes are sweet. If they see other monkeys getting grapes, they will be incensed and they are willing. This is the part that really twists me. They're willing to hurt themselves just to see another group of monkeys not get the grapes, not get ahead. We care so much. And this is this is backed up, you know, Daniel Kahneman's research, you know, showing that people really, really care about their comparative income. So I cited those statistics before about people saying, I'm pretty happy with my own family financial situation, but I'm very unhappy in my life. And I wonder if a lot of that is due to the effect that, you know, you'd be willing to make less money if all your neighbors around you also made less money. You are willing to give up a raise 
as long as the people around you aren't getting even more and you feel like you're comparatively downscale. Is is that really sort of the accelerant that's that's been thrown on the bonfire of American happiness here is kind of this comparative aspect or are there other things going on? Yeah, so that's a great question. One of my favorite cartoons, it shows two people talking and one person says to the other one, I do count my blessings, but then I end up counting those of others who have more and better blessings and that pisses me off. I mean, which is exactly your point, right? I mean, isn't that exactly the point? I will just also throw out in my tiny brush with greatness that Danny Kahneman was actually one of my graduate school advisors. Oh, Um, so lucky. Oh my gosh. Following his work for years, literally for years, for decades now. But, But in terms of your very good question, I would say two things about that. One, we absolutely know that comparisons make people, makes people feel worse. There's a phenomenon that I think actually originated with behavioral economists that's called the wealthy neighborhood paradox. Right. And what that finding shows is that if you live in a really nice neighborhood, you feel less happy because what you're doing is you're comparing, oh, you know, all these people have, you know, a second home or a nicer car or a bigger house or, you know, a better vacation or whatever, that that comparison is sort of forced on us when you live in a wealthier neighborhood. Whereas you might think, gosh, you know, A wealthy neighborhood, you know, that's really great. You know, you must have a lot of money. There's also a fascinating study that was done in California in which half of the people who worked for public institutions in California got sent an email saying, hey, there's a website that will tell you how much all of your colleagues make. And of course, the website then crashed in the next hour as everybody logged on and tried to figure out what their colleagues made. And what people then found is that the next day, People felt less happy in their own job because they had just found out that many of them were, in fact, not paid as well as their colleagues for doing the same work. So this comparison, in fact, really hurts our happiness. And it's much easier to compare now with social media. You didn't used to know where your friends or family members went on vacation or what their kids did or if they got a promotion. You had to wait for that holiday letter, you know, once a year. Now, it's every hour on the hour, we see other people's highlight reels. It is interesting, especially in the wake of the revelations from the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, about the research that Facebook themselves did into the effects, especially for teenage girls, Instagram and, and these other kind of comparative platform technologies where you can see a curated version of someone's life and you can say, wow, they're thin. They're going to all the parties I wasn't invited to. They don't have all the acne that I do, whatever the, the comparisons are. And that that is really impactful. But beyond that, I, I sort of want to I want to ask about the other potential, and, and maybe this veers into sort of the trite pop psych versions of this. But what are the other what are the other factors here? Because as I noted a moment ago, clearly there's been some kind of acceleration in the last 10 or 15 years. And you could correlate that with the advent of social media and the and cell phone use and, and tech platforms. But the roots do seem to go a little bit deeper than that. And, you know, the 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 kind of popular explanation for that, that that I read about is, well, it's about social alienation in general. It's we used to have a sense of place, of belonging, of, you know, it's kind of the vibe of you belong to a church or or another faith center and you you felt a sense of place in your in your job and your and your community and your town and you were a member of the Elks Club or you know the the sewings or whatever it was and that the loss of all of that and the inability for technology substitutes to truly substitute is also a major factor in our decline of 
happiness. What do you make of that? Or, or if it's not that, are there other, other factors at play? So again, it's a complicated question because part of the issue is we certainly are experiencing more alienation. That that certainly seems to be true, that, that people are less likely to feel connected to their neighbors or a religious community or other sorts of ways in which we, you know, the, the famous Bowling Alone, you know, book, of course, by Robert Putnam. So in a sense, we aren't as connected. But I think another issue is that we really are placing a premium now on being busy. The idea that mm. you have all of these things, so your day is scheduled, your life is scheduled. And there's so many reports of, you know, parents with young kids saying, and I'm driving to soccer practice, and then I'm driving to the orchestra practice, and I'm driving to ballet. And this idea. Oh that, my gosh, you just described my freaking oh, schedule. <laughs> is this touching a nerve? I, again, don't mean Yes, to... but you know what? You put your finger on it. Sorry, not to drop, but you really put your finger on it because my wife and I say all the time, we have to give the caveat. But we're lucky. We're fortunate. The fact that we have children, we're fortunate about that. The fact that we're privileged enough to have kids who can do these things, you know, that's that's amazing. We're, we're these are these are first world problems, you know. It's so so we we even have a layer of guilt on top of our levels of complaint about the busyness of our schedule. It's like, what are you complaining about? You know what? So anyway, sorry. I you you've you've touched a nerve there. Well, well, no, and 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 again, the fact that it resonates so clearly with you, I think, is a really vivid example of how this occurs in all different settings in which people don't actually have free time. So, and that could be free time to go for a walk, to spend time in nature. It could be free time to phone a friend. It could be free time to read a book. It could be free time to, I remember when my, my son, who's now 24, but I remember at some point he was in, I think, middle school. And he was doing a summer baseball camp and he was always like, I want to get there early. I want to get there early. And, and I was like, why? Cause you know, it meant waking up, you know, at seven versus eight. And he goes, because the most fun is when kids get there early and they just throw the baseball around and different people pitch and hit. So basically we're paying for a camp of structured, organized baseball. And all he wants to do is go hang out with a bunch of kids, throwing a ball in a yard that's his favorite part before the mm. camp starts. And I think about that in terms of my childhood. My childhood was, you know, riding a bike to the pool and maybe riding a bike to somebody else's house and, you know, doing whatever. And, and children now, they really don't do that. I see my college students come in and the students I teach at Amherst, they've spent a whole hell of a lot of their lives being very, very busy. And they arrive at college and at some extent, at least for some of them, they're actually kind of burned out because they have spent so much of their mm. time really busy, really structured, and not getting a chance to even ask the question, what makes me happy? That's really interesting. I mean, first of all, it gets to a conversation that my, my wife and I have, which is the distinction between happiness and satisfaction, which, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm once again veering into your expertise, but it mm -hmm. feels to us like these aspects of our lives that keep us incredibly busy are things from which I derive a great deal of satisfaction, but not day-to-day -day happiness. But it also kind of gets to that seeming disparity in the in the social science, the, the general social survey data that I cited before, that it's not really about material happiness, material well-being. It seems to be, but again, 80% say they're happy with their own family's financial situation, only 14% say they're very happy in their lives. And just, you know, for, for our regular Beyond Politics listeners who are, you know, like, hey, where's the politics and all this? I mean, it does kind of get to 
For Democrats, their solution is frequently, well, let's talk about all the ways we can make you materially better off in your life. But that's not really getting to the nub of what's making people unhappy. It kind of reminds me of what the social scientist Yuval Harari wrote in Sapiens, which is he kind of gave this example of, aren't we better off than we were in the Middle Ages? And he gives the example of, well, now we can take a hot shower. And his point was, well, there's an allegory of the cave aspect to this of, if you didn't know you were missing out on a hot shower in the year 1400, it wasn't making you unhappy. You you took more pleasure in the things around you that you could control the bike ride to your, to the pool or to your friend's house to kind of mess around before baseball practice. And it, it does feel like as much as our material well-being has so clearly increased, especially with the advent of all of this technology around us, the things that we derive either satisfaction or happiness from, we, we haven't pushed that frontier nearly as far. Well, I think that's true. And I guess I'd say a couple of things. One, the field of psychology really focused historically on problems, right? So when people talked about what do you study in psychology, you gave the example of abnormal psych, that, not for me, but right. that really reflected where we were, that, that the discipline of psychology was a discipline focused on phobias, neuroses, depression, you know, et cetera. It was not a field that focused on positive emotion. That was deliberate mm. and intentional. So even when we talk about this field of positive psychology, you know, that is relatively new in the history of the field of positive psychology. And to get back to one of your earlier points, when we talk about what is happiness, right? What is it? It basically breaks into three things. One is pleasure. And so the pleasure is things like, you know, that great piece of cheesecake or the great glass of wine or looking at a beautiful piece of art or listening to a beautiful piece of music. But pleasure is fleeting because that great piece of cheesecake you had yesterday it's probably not making you happy today, right? It's, it's over. So then what matters more? Two, engagement. And this mm. is really engagement in your life. So are you doing things that you find exciting? I, I look at examples of like, you know, planning a trip, you know, going to a major league baseball game, you know, going to a Broadway show or an opera, just, you know, adventure travel, whatever makes you happy, but engaging in your life, not just letting your life be scheduled and busy, but engaging in your life. And then the third thing, and I think this is really the most important, and this is what, you know, many people have described the idea of meaning doing things in your life that you find meaningful. So when college students come and sit in my office and say, what should I major in? I say, what do you love? You know, what's the material that you want to do first? What's the material that you've talked about or read that you call home and tell your parents about, you know, find something that is meaningful. And, and to me, that's something that we just don't pay enough attention to, that we don't stop and kind of ask ourselves that question of what do I find meaningful in my life and how can I do more of that? I want to get into your book and, and your work on the power of mindset. You point out kind of in the setup for that book, that there's a reason, mindset, is the reason why spending time on Facebook makes us feel sad and lonely. True, true observation. I never feel good. It's like it's like after eating a pixie stick, it's like for like two seconds, I feel like, ooh, that's a jolt of sugar. And then it's like, wow, I feel awful. You know, it, it's why expensive name brand medicines provide better pain relief than the generic stuff, even if it's the same stuff inside. Well, why? It's something in your mind. Why does a hospital room with a good view speed up recovery from surgery? That makes absolutely no sense. Okay, so wh what's the answer to all of those questions? 
Well, so the answer to all those questions is actually the same thing. And that is we can do things in our lives, again, our thoughts, our mindsets, and our behaviors that actually lead to increased happiness. We've all had the experience and we've all heard about, you know, the placebo effect. The idea is, you know, somebody has a headache and you give them a sugar pill and you tell them this will help your pain go away. And in fact, it does. And so this example of the placebo effect is, of course, well-established in the literature. We also know it as people that when your little kid, you know, stubs their toe and says, you know, would you kiss it and make it better? That's also the placebo effect in terms of giving that attention, giving that touch. And what research now in positive psychology tells us is that we actually can change, shift the way that we think about things to experience greater happiness. And we can also engage in relatively simple daily life behaviors, more time in nature, room with a view out of a hospital that actually can lead to better happiness and better health. And to me, that's what's particularly powerful because lots of us kind of go through life thinking, Happiness is something that happens to us. It depends Mm. on fortune or genes or luck. And what the research now tells us is that's just wrong. Happiness for most of us involves effort. Is that effort a learnable skill? Is this the kind of thing? So for example, coach, talk about things that give meaning. I coach my daughter and at times my sons, but right now, mostly my my daughter on her soccer team and her basketball team. Now, first of all, this is something that I enjoy that gives me you know meaning and, and significance. But I also really emphasize with the kids relentlessly, shamelessly positive mindset and confidence at all times, a Ted Lasso-esque approach. This is total gut feeling. Like I have no idea if if this kind of thing works. Does this have a chance of being effective? Can you, starting with, with young kids even, train people in the kinds of habits of mind that will lead them to more success and more happiness in what they do throughout their lives? So I'm going to give you two answers, yes and no. And so let me explain. Uh-oh, wait, I'm really Sorry. afraid of the no. Uh, the so, yes. so to some extent, yes. So to some extent, we model behaviors of other people. So if you've grown up with, you know, a parent or a guardian who's, you know, very sort of gloomy and pessimistic, you might in fact adopt that sort of worldview. If you grow up with someone, a coach, a teacher, a parent, a neighbor who has a very positive view, you might adopt that view. However, and this is an important, however, it does seem to be that some people have an easier time doing that than others. So what the research Mm. in positive psychology tells us is about 50% of our happiness is determined by our genes. And so I, I, I think that's really important to recognize because it means that some people have an easier time finding that silver lining, you know, adopting a positive mindset. So some people in fact have a head start on finding happiness. However, the most important part of your question was, can we train it? And, and the answer to that is decidedly yes. And in fact, as I talk about in the opening pages of my book, The Positive Shift, I am not a naturally happy person. I have close genetic relatives who've suffered from bipolar disorder, from clinical depression. I've lost a grandparent to suicide. And so I am someone who does not come naturally and easily to happiness. And I frankly have spent a bunch of my life feeling anxious, feeling sad, you know, ruminating and worrying. And so to me, the field of positive psychology provides tremendous hope because what it tells us is that even for those of us 
who don't sort of naturally and easily find happiness, there are specific and concrete things we can do to improve happiness in our own lives. And none of these are things like sell all your belongings and move to Aruba. They're all things that we can do. That is extremely encouraging because when I have kind of touched this story through, you know, he was your mentor and he's sort of my intellectual hero, Danny Kahneman, you know, he he's actually given a TED talk about this. He says that there's research that shows, look, if you're the kind of person whose set point on happiness is such that, you know, it's pretty high, if you get into an accident and you're suddenly wheelchair bound, about six months later, what researchers find is you're at about the same happiness level as you were beforehand. And if you're the kind of person whose happiness set point is low and you win the lottery, about six months later, you're about at the same place regardless. And so, you know, that has a certain fatalism to it that that I don't love, even though I accept it. But it's very encouraging to hear that there are actually things that you can do. So let's I mean, I think we've we've kind of held out on our listeners long enough here. Give us the quick fix. You know, you, I, I want people to actually read your book. I do. I, the positive shift. People should go out and read the book. But just walk us through a, a few of the nuggets. What are the kinds of things that people can do to help affect a positive mindset that can make them happier? So I'm going to give you four. And I'm giving you four because one of the key findings is that happiness is not one size fits all. And, and so... I think that's important for people to recognize so that you don't Mm. say to your neighbor, you know, like, well, I meditate, you should too. It makes me feel good. And then somebody says, I hate meditation or, you know, whatever. So there are four consistent findings in literature. One, behaviors. There are relatively low level behaviors that we can engage in. One of those is exercise. One of those is actually adopting religious spiritual beliefs. One of those is in fact meditating. So, so basically low level of reading fiction, reading fiction is another. So relatively low level sort of tweaks that we can make in our daily lives in terms of behaviors. That's one giving giving is one of the most consistent findings in the literature. And what I love about this one is anything counts. It can be donating to charity. It can be volunteering in your community. It can be doing a random act of kindness, you know, paying for coffee for the person, you know, behind you in line. Any kind of giving makes us feel good. And there's fascinating research in neuroscience showing that when we just think about giving a gift to a friend, it activates a part of the brain that is the exact same part of the brain that is activated when we experience other rewarding things like eating chocolate or using cocaine, but that's like a less positive example. But so it really suggests that giving is activating a reward center of the brain. So that's two. Three, you touched on this a little bit earlier, nature, spending time in nature. And that could be going for a walk at lunch. It could be looking at nature through a window. It could even be having plants, you know, in your home or office, but spending time in nature seems to be tremendously beneficial in terms of making us feel happier and making us feel healthier. And then finally, and I do this one last because it's the most important relationships, Mm relationships are the single best predictor of our happiness. But the key thing here is it's not quantity, it's quality. Having people in your life who you can be authentic and real and vulnerable with, having high quality relationships, friends, family members, neighbors, colleagues, whatever, best predictor of happiness. So what I don't hear in that list is anything on the material spectrum, except maybe a little bit of 
the the sense of giving maybe a little bit. What do you find there? Because obviously, if you're in a situation, I, I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but maybe we should say it. If you're in a situation where you're incredibly poor, you know, or you know, you're you're in in difficult physical circumstances, and clearly there are some fixes there that should improve your happiness at that end. But but are there beyond that? Does it does it matter? So two key points about money, which you're right, was not in my initial list. Although I do actually have a chapter in my book that talks about money because it's something that we hear about and believe in and, and certainly has a lot of relevance. So here's what the, the research on money and happiness tells us. One, your intuition is exactly right. If you are worried about survival, are my kids going to have enough food to eat today? Do I have a safe place to sleep tonight? Are we going to have enough you know, heat this winter? If you're worried about basic survival, more money absolutely does increase happiness. The issue is once you get to the level at which it's not basic survival, the addition of more wealth has just the tiniest amount, if any, improvement on happiness. So basically it's about money is providing stability, security. And, and once you sort of are at that level, you don't get a really big extra boost. So that's one thing. The other thing, which I actually think is even more interesting about money is that what matters isn't really how much you have. It's more about how you spend it. So spending money on experiences actually does lead to increases in happiness in a way that spending money on belongings, you know, better watch, car, shoes, phone, doesn't. And, and the reason- What George that, Carlin would call stuff. That what absolutely would call stuff. And, and this is right in line with actually the work that you talked about from Kahneman, what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, that mm. more money does not lead to happiness because you adapt. You adapt to winning the lottery. You adapt to being in a wheelchair. You adapt, you adapt, you adapt. And the issue is when you spend money on belongings, you know, watch, car, shoes, purse, initially it's exciting. And then it's just your watch. Whereas if you spend money on experiences, travel, Broadway show, concert, whatever, you get to anticipate it, you get to experience it, and you get to reflect back on it. So how you spend money seems to be a much better predictor of happiness than how much you have, again, as long as you're kind of above the poverty line. To what degree do expectations and goals factor in? And I ask from the standpoint, again, kind of referring back to Yuval Harari, he points out that there's a mindset that has its roots in capitalism, market economies, and that's it, based around the idea of in order to be happier, here is a goal and we need to raise to that level. Here is something that we want to achieve. It could be financial. It could be something else. We need to get up there. And he contrasts that with a more Eastern Buddhist philosophy of we should decrease our wants down here. Back to the example of the middle-aged person in the shower. If we reduce our expectations and, and our desires, essentially, very Buddhist approach to it, that also can, it's the mismatch that creates unhappiness. How does that factor in? So what's fascinating is that in psychology, we call that self-discrepancy theory. And, and what you're describing is exactly right. What is the discrepancy between where I want to be and where I am? And so mm. you can narrow that discrepancy by, you know, I want to be an A student and I'm a C student, so I'm going to work harder and harder and harder to get there. Or I can be like, C student, great. 
I'm good, you know, and, and, and there my goal is here. So you can get to that in different places. I think it's also the case that people overwhelmingly have this sense again, of where they should be based on what we talked about earlier, the comparison. So sometimes it's not just where I am. It's also, I'm getting Mm. pressure to reach this other level because well, other people are doing this, you know, I thought my vacation was good, but other people are going on a more and bigger um, vacation. And so part of the issue in terms of where we are and where we want to be, it may not be determined just by ourselves. It may also be determined by the comparisons around us, which again, is one of the challenges that perhaps the presence of social media in this comparison is leading where we would be happy to be like, oh no, that's where I have to be, where I am is insufficient. Absolutely fascinating. And so I, I what I'm taking away from this is more nature walks with my wife and children where we give randomly to strangers and we engage in meaningful conversation and experience with one another. It, that's I, 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 We're going to start taking more hikes except for my knees falling apart. Okay. <laughs> I want to do some rapid fire here. Not that we're at the very end, but you have, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have kind of a rich CV of publications and contributions to scholarship and you know, general like learning. And I, I just want to hit on a few of those, including a curveball for our Beyond Politics listeners at the very end. Let's let's start first. About 20 years ago, you wrote a book on parenting. And and obviously this is a time, you know, an age-old issue, how to how to be a more effective parent. Obviously, psychologists are always coming up with new ideas on this. I'm guessing your book stands the test of time. What what did you take away from that? Are there any kind of nutshell points that you'd like to share with people about, you know, having a more effective and rewarding parenting experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I I feel like my parenting book was really before the time that the the world was ready for it, because there actually are a lot of books that sort of are doing what I tried to do 20 years ago. And basically what I was trying to do is to take a science-based approach to parenting. So I wrote the book at the time I had a a three-year-old and an an infant, and I was, you know, managing the toilet training and, you know, the diapers and breastfeeding and pacifiers and sort of all of these, you know, sleep training. And because I'm a nerd, I kept being like, well, what does the literature say you should do? Like, not just, you know, what do I read about in a magazine article? What does the science tell us? And so what I really delve into in that book is what is the scientific effort for these different kinds of parenting challenges that we face with very little kids. And at the time, people really weren't thinking about parenting other than from the sort of medical pediatrician kind of approach. You know, this is what's safe, this is what's not. And and so in a sense, that very first book, which again was published a long time ago, was my attempt to sort of take the complex scientific literature, read it, and then put it into approachable, readable, friendly advice to young parents. And so although, you know, that book is now quite old, that's the same kind of model that I've used in my more recent writing for a public audience. So I sort of look at that book as my experience in trying to translate science for a general audience, which I have found super rewarding. Mm. Well, that's good. See, you're taking your own advice. You're finding things that you find rewarding and you're engaging in them. All right, let me hit you with another one. We were just having a dinnertime conversation about the trolley problem the other night with my kids who were way too young. It got really gruesome, by the way. It was like, you know, it was it was very bloody. I guess if you have like an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 6-year-old, that's, that's where it's going to go. It does bring up this question, though, of, you know, 
how, you know, how willing we are to intervene on behalf of others, which is something that you've actually written about in a book about the bystander effect. Now, when I studied psychology, the classic story about this it was the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964, which, you know, was the classic story is she was attacked three times. There was an alley. There were almost 30 people who witnessed it. It was the many hands problem. No one called the police. That story has been a little bit, I think, debunked since since that time. But it kind of it, it has a truthiness to it that that it is often hard to know when to jump in and intervene on behalf of other people. So why do good people find it so hard to intervene in difficult situations and, and make a difference? So great question. And I will say my book does include the original data as published on the Kitty Genovese case, and then also the sort of more recent updates we've had to that story. But I'll just say briefly, my prompt for writing my most recent book, again, on the bystander effect called Why We Act, was that my oldest son started college about six years ago now. And two weeks into college, he called me one night, his voice was breaking. And he said, mom, a student died in my dorm room last night, in my dorm last night, not his physical room, the building. And, and then he told me the story and the story was one that just is heartbreaking as a mom, as a professor, a kid fell and hit his head on a Saturday night, his friends and roommates, you know, watched over him for hours to see if he was still breathing. They, you know, wanted him to be okay, but what they didn't do for nearly 19 hours was call 911. Mm. And when they finally did call, it was too late. The kid died. And he was 19 years old in his first two weeks of college. And when my son told me that story, I was just heartbroken. And that was actually the prompt for, for my most recent book. But so to answer your question, we've all been in situations in which we've either needed help and haven't gotten it, or we've seen something and not known you know, what to do or how to step up. It's really a universal experience. So what I delve into in this book is exactly your question. Why? What leads people to not step up? And basically there are three factors. One, we don't actually know what's happening. So we see a student who's drunk and we don't know, are they drunk or really unconscious? Uh, is that joke kind of offensive or is it really funny? You know, is that sexual misconduct or is it, you know, flirting? You know, we, we don't know how to react. So one question is, it's ambiguous. We don't want to feel foolish or overreact for, for intervening. And we don't really know what's going on. So one factor is it's ambiguous. Another factor, and this was really the Kitty Genovese story. We don't feel it's our responsibility. Yeah, that's a problem. But you know what? There are all these other people. It doesn't have to be me. Somebody else can step up. It's not me. And the third factor is fear of the consequences. I should say something, I should do something, but I don't want to feel embarrassed. I don't want to be not liked. I don't want to be ostracized by my peers. I don't want to not get that promotion. You know, I don't want to be physically injured. And basically those are the three factors, ambiguity, lack of responsibility, and fear of the consequences. All right. So for the politics angle that I teased, is this scholarship what got you roped in somehow to the January 6th committee? Well, it is. And so what was fascinating to me, again, as a psychologist, is I wrote this book, the book came out, and all of a sudden, 
it started having great resonance to politics. So my book actually has the distinction of being blurbed by noted conservative politicians, George Conway and Bill Kristol, who both blurbed my book because they said, this is what's happening, you know, with the Republican party. And I delve into that factor of how group pressure leads otherwise normal people to do all sorts of things. I wrote a couple of op-eds for USA Today that examined particularly what, what happened on January 6th and what happened in terms of Trump's impeachment trial. And so I was asked in the spring if I would be interviewed by the January 6th Select Committee, and I provided expert testimony. That's absolutely amazing. And it does resonate for me, this idea that it's so hard to recognize, again, you know, the Kitty Genovese story, which is probably mostly apocryphal, but I I remember when I initially studied it, sort of identifying with the onlookers because it is, it's, it's partially ambiguity and it's partially how hard it is to recognize when something truly shocking is happening. And, and when it's so incongruous with what we expect to be, you know, this can't possibly be going on is, is sort of the feeling, you know, the, the Ken Burns documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust just came out. And I was struck by that feeling over and over again. I'm not trying to excuse the people who kind of wished that away, but I can understand to some degree how hard it is when something so mind-blowingly terrible is happening, even if it's happening in front of your eyes, it's like your brain can't accept it. It's 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 so out of context. And we see this, this now meditorializing a little bit, we see everything connected to the Donald Trump movement and the insurrection and all of the awfulness wrought upon the country happening around us. And it's like, we can't even accept it. Well, look, that's absolutely fascinating. All of your books sound fascinating. I, I hope we've given people enough of a tease, especially on the Positive Mindset book, which which people can find absolutely anywhere. Um, and this it, it's absolutely a fascinating topic. Also, you have TEDx talks that are that are available online. People can Google you. So it's Dr. Katherine Sanderson if you're interested more on the happiness topic. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us on Beyond Politics and Great Ideas. Well, thank you so much for this invitation to talk. As you can tell, I love talking about psychology. <laughs>